the title of our, our message this week is really appropriate to what we've just been talking about. The title is called Follow the Leader. How many of you remember that game? Yeah, come on, everybody, right? So you remember that in Follow the Leader, uh, that, that children's game, uh, everyone had to do whatever crazy thing the leader was doing. So if I was the leader and I stopped and did the funky chicken, some of you don't even know what the funky chicken is, and I don't think I'll show you what it is, but I can still do it. <laughs> Craig's disappointed. Uh, and you didn't do that, then you would be out of the game. And so that's uh, what follow the leader was. And, you know, that competitive spirit that we have, we create that sometimes in children, and the peer pressure of not wanting to be told, hey, you're out, that causes us to follow that leader and do what they are doing. So, um, actually, I think we're prone to play that game all the way through life sometimes. Uh, we're going to follow the leader and do uh, what they tell us to do. Now, take another angle on that. How many of you had probably a mother that would say something to you like, see, I had a couple of friends named Randy, and my mother would say to me, if Randy was going to jump off a cliff, would you jump off a cliff? So that's another little saying that uh, we, we hear about following the leader. And so we're prone to kind of follow people, and especially maybe when we're young, and maybe even as we're older, to do what they do. Man, if he's going to jump off the garage roof, I'm going to jump off the garage roof, you know? And uh, my son did that, by the way. And so uh, would you follow him? Well, in leadership training, and you know I do some leadership training, um, I talk about leaders who people would follow uh, no matter what they were asked to do. Uh, in the military, we had leaders that were sometimes out for their own glory. And they, would, uh, they were concerned about getting more rank or in a combat zone. They wanted to win some medals. And so they would risk, they'd risk the people that were following them. They'd risk their lives. And so those kind of leaders really wouldn't last very long. And uh, they, they obviously were not good leaders out for their own personal glory. But there were other leaders that were easy to follow. And those were the people that cared about their own people. I want you to hear that this morning. Because we're talking about discipleship and developing uh, disciples, so I want you to understand the idea of leaders caring for people, because it's so, so important. Um, I think we all follow something or someone in life, and, and I think the whole world follows something. It, it may be that we follow a philosophy. Uh, yesterday we were in Wheaton, and we went past this uh, theosophical center, and they were having a huge event. I've never seen a car there before, but there were hundreds of cars. And so uh, there's a group of people that are following a philosophy. Their philosophy is that their God is wisdom. That's what they're talking about. But it's human wisdom and all the different 
uh, uh, pictures of that. So some people follow philosophy, and some people will follow a person. You know, there's a person that really impresses me. Uh, you remember, I want to be like Mike? Yeah, yeah. A lot of people really did want to be like Mike. Uh, maybe that's not such a good uh, picture right now. But uh, So we follow a philosophy. We may follow a, a person, a political party. There are people that are so... <laughs> I hadn't thought about this, but no matter who the person that is running in their party, they're going to follow it. <laughs> and that person may be absolutely crazy, but they're following a, a, a political party. And there are people that follow religion all over the world. We just follow a religion. Uh, and that can have good and it can have bad as well. So we need to be careful about these things. But a lot of times, a lot of people, they just follow their own desires. You know, I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to do my own thing. Most of our world, really, that's where they're at. I'm not going to follow anybody, anything. I'm just going to follow my own desires. When we follow some of these things, we're often disappointed because people, if we follow people, they fail and they fall. Religious leaders, political leaders, athletes, we're often disappointed by people. So this idea of following leaders is really important in our lives. You know, uh, <laughs> I want to follow a person who cares for me with all of their heart. That's the kind of person that I really want to follow. And uh, I want to follow a person who speaks the truth. Isn't that important? It really is. I want people that will tell me the truth no matter what. Even sometimes if it hurts me, I want to know the truth. And uh, I want a person that will lead me with a purpose and, uh, and a, an end goal that is worth living for or perhaps even dying for. There's only one leader, and you know that. There's only one leader that exceeds all of those qualities and that's the Lord Jesus, the Son of God and the Son of Man. He's really the only person, God, that is worth following. You know, last week Phil taught us about an invitation that came from the Lord Jesus. And he said it was the greatest invitation ever. And it was in the area of discovering disciples. <laughs> and Jesus did that. He discovered disciples. And that invitation was Come on to me. All you who labor, how many of you labor? Come on, let's be honest. Yeah, we labor. And are heavy laden. Do you feel heavy laden? I do. I really do. I know you do as well. Phil connected it with guilt last week. And so there's a lot of things that make us feel like we really have a load on us. And so Jesus, discovering disciples, says... Come on to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Isn't that a beautiful thought, rest? By the way, how many rested really well on that cold night last night? I did. I love those nights. So, and then he goes on and says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Think about that. The Lord is sharing our burden. When I think of him carrying our yoke, 
He's next to me, and there's a yoke across his shoulders and across my shoulders, but I feel nothing because the Lord is carrying that load. That's what he's promised for us. What a picture that is. I love that. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle, a gentle Savior. How many leaders do you hear today one of the first qualities is gentleness? No. Most of our leaders are vociferous and and loud and and mouthy and, and... like this, and and Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So we're going on just two more weeks in this series. Village Bible Church seeks to develop disciples who diligently learn, You, you wrote these things down last week, who diligently learn, passionately love, and purposely live for the glory of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now that's a mouthful, and we could probably just break that down for the rest of the morning, but uh, those are the, that's the definition that we're using for discipling. And in order to fulfill this vision of developing disciples, I want you to see something this morning. Jesus established the church. Okay, I want us to think this morning not as individuals in this first part, as the church. So in order to develop disciples, Jesus established the church. It says in Ephesians that God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body. We're the body of Christ. We're the church. So the first point this morning is a disciple-making church is made up of those who, and then I'm going to follow that, but we're not getting to that point yet. Here's what I want to say. Um, Community. The church is a community, and developing disciples is a community responsibility. That's the responsibility of each of us together. I'm I'm going to hammer that just a little bit this morning. You know, we often read the scriptures. Think about it. We read the scriptures as individuals. That's how we think in Western society. Uh, And we think about, okay, this is what God's doing to me, in me, and through me. And we're probably the only society in the world, the Western society, that thinks and reads scripture that way. Uh, I think that when this scripture was written, it was written to the church, to the body of Christ, to the community. So we need to think that way this morning. Uh, As you are going, make disciples. That's not an individual thing. That's that's to the church. And and if you look at the Great Commission and wherever it says you, we ought to think like Southerners, it really means y'all, y'all. That's what y'all ought to be making disciples. And if we go overseas... Uh, You know, like when you go to Uganda, I suspect that you see more of a community thing than we have here in the United States. So I want to look at this this morning as a community. So a disciple-making church, and this is our first bullet point, a disciple-making church is made up of those who have counted the cost. That's a heavy statement, and it's a heavy thought for me. 
counting the cost. You know, there's a lot of leaders and a lot of preachers and a lot of teachers that make the Christian life sound like it's a rose garden. They really do. You know, come to the Lord. He'll take all of your problems. He'll bless you with material things, with money, with this, with that. You know, we talk about the prosperity gospel. And there's a lot of that teaching that goes on. But if, if we look at the church as a rose garden, what do roses have that protect them? Thorns. So there's a lot of thorns in the rose garden. And I said earlier that I wanted a leader that would tell me the truth. Well, Jesus was a truth teller. And that's what he does in the word of God. He never minces words about what it means to follow him when he tells us about counting the cost. And he told those that followed him that there would be a great cost. Uh, he said to them, if you follow me, you need to expect the same treatment that I got. Remember where he says, a student is not greater than the teacher? Remember where the Lord says that? And uh, he says that a servant is not greater than the master? And he's talking about, what kind of treatment did you expect? That's how they treated me. Turn in your Bibles, will you, to Luke chapter 14, just for a moment. This is a hard passage. But remember, I think it's directed to us as a church. This is something that we go through together. Luke 14, starting with verse 25. You know, Jesus wasn't concerned about pleasing the crowds. It says, now great crowds accompanied him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and now it gets hard, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. What in the world was Jesus saying? That's not going to make people want to follow him. But he was telling the truth. Now, he wasn't telling, we know from Scripture, he's not telling us to hate our family. He's not saying that at all. But he says, you need to love me more than your family if you're a committed disciple that is counting the cost. And he goes on, and he says, uh, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple Bearing a cross in those days was what a man did before he was crucified. And Jesus is saying that following me huh, means bearing your own cross, willing to die for the Lord. That's counting the cost. He says, for, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it, Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. I'm a builder. I've built a number of homes and buildings in my life, uh, so many of them. And, and one of the first things that we do is we make a materials list and a contractor list, and we see, can our budget, can we really afford to build this house? And he's right. You go around sometimes, and all you see is a foundation. And those people ran out of money or the economy bottomed out or something happened. They weren't able to count the cost. So if we're to follow the Lord Jesus, 
we need to be willing to count the cost. Yet untold millions of people, even though Jesus taught this way, untold millions of people have followed the Lord Jesus. Now, I don't want you to say, well, man, I can't fit into that picture. I want us to hear as a church this morning that we're together in this making disciple things and that we as a church are going to count the cost of what it means to bring the gospel to our community. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are so many people. I could give millions of illustrations, probably hundreds, not millions, but I just want to, yeah, you're laughing because you know that was a lie. Uh, I could come up with a, at least a, a couple of hundred illustrations, but my uncle Dave, he got out of World War II and from the Navy, went to Wheaton College, got a degree, went to grad school, uh, got his doctorate in, in uh, uh, languages. And then he went to Guatemala and took his family to Guatemala. He counted the cost because he knew what they were going into. And they moved in with the Akiche Indian tribe out in the mountains of Guatemala. And he gave his life to translating the New Testament into one, one Akiche Indian dialect. He counted the cost. And there's so many people that do that. <laughs> and then his son followed him and is doing the same thing today in Guatemala, only he's doing it with a different Indian dialect. Imagine giving your whole life to, to translate God's word so people can come to know the Lord Jesus. There are many people that have counted the cost, and you don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to go to Guatemala. You don't have to be a pastor or a preacher. We as a church can count the cost. What does it mean what will we have to sacrifice? What will we have to do as a church to make disciples for Christ? That's the question. And so the question is, uh, have we as a church counted the cost? And if we have, then we're purposely living for Christ's glory. But beyond that, and we could hone in there all day, but a disciple-making church is made up of those who have followed Christ together to be a part of his community, the church. I told you I was going to hammer on this. When Jesus called disciples, do you remember, who did he first call? Anybody remember? Uh, he called two people in, in the book of Matthew. He called two brothers, and then he called two more brothers. Remember Andrew and Peter, James and John. And so he, he called brothers. He called pairs. This is what I want you to see. Jesus does issue an individual call to us. Don't, don't misunderstand that. But even in his disciple-making, the first two, four people he called were two pairs. And then from then on, he called people to join the group, to be part of the community, to be part of the 12, and then later part of the 72. That's how the Lord operated. Uh, turn to Luke chapter 10. If you're still in the book of Luke, just turn back a few pages. And here's our Lord. And after it says this in, in uh, Luke 10 and verse 1, 
just going to read four verses here. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Wow, when I take a trip, I got a lot more things than they had. Uh, I just flew to California, and, you know, I tried to get everything in one little bag so that I wouldn't have to check my luggage. And so when we travel, we carry everything with us. I mean, toothpaste and everything. We got to have it, you know. Uh, And he's telling, I love what the Lord's teaching here. He's teaching them, when I send you out as pairs, as a group, you're going to learn to depend on the Lord first, and you're going to learn to depend on one another. And that's what I'm talking about as a community. (laughs) The, The Lord knew our makeup as people, and he knew that we needed to be together. He knew that uh, two are better than one. And he knows that when we minister, we can encourage one another. (laughs) And we can pray for one another. I had the privilege Friday afternoon of uh, being out here with Phil for just a little time, and and we actually knelt together right here and and prayed together. What an encouragement that was. It really was to be with a brother and to pray for the church and to pray for for what God is doing. And so the Lord sends us out together (laughs) to encourage, to to, uh, uh, pray together, and and we share the load together. So, I mean, I'm a carpenter by trade, and we carried a lot of heavy things, beams and things, and it was, (laughs) share the load. It's so much better to share the load. And that's what the Lord wants us to do and we can watch each other's backs, and we can learn from one another. There's times when I admit that it's hard for me to learn from others, and actually the Lord is teaching me some things in that area, to learn from one another. Uh, And we need to learn how to depend on the Lord. You know, a sheep who wanders off alone, even to go and do ministry, it can be dangerous to be alone. I think the Lord intended us to make disciples together. He said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them, there I am in the midst of them. One of the beautiful things, uh, I talk about teaching fatherhood classes in prison in the state of Illinois. And when I look at our little congregation here this morning, Uh, It's a blessing to me to think that there's four of us that go together now out of this this small congregation, Tom, Tom, Dave, and Dan, to minister together to men in prison to teach them how to love their, their children from prison and how to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can do all those things. We can encourage one another. We can pray for one another. We can watch each other's backs. We can learn from one another. It's a beautiful thing. And that's what God intends for the church, to, for us to be disciple makers together. 
So, are we as a church following, diligently following the Lord and learning together to follow Christ together? We don't need individuals. We need to come together on that. So the third thing about a disciple-making church is that it's made up of, of those who have, have accepted the challenge to care for others. This would be a good spot to preach the one another's of Scripture, and we don't have the time to go through that, but there's so many one another's in Scripture. Somebody just throw out a couple while I'm standing here. What does the Bible say about one another to us? Encourage one another, pray for one another, love one another. They're all over. There's about 30 or 40 of them. So that we're to do, uh, greet one another with a holy kiss. <laughs> uh, I, I got a couple smiles out of that. So uh, that's what the Lord tells us to do is to care for one another. And you know, one, a person could not walk with the Lord Jesus Christ very far without knowing how much he cared for them and for others. And that's true today, just as true today. You can't come to the Lord Jesus without knowing how much he cares for you. I think the best picture of this in the scriptures, maybe the most vivid picture of it is, is in John chapter 11. If you want to turn there, you can. I'm just going to read a couple of verses. John 11 was one of my favorite passages as a child. I was made to memorize some scriptures, so John 11:35 was one of my favorite verses. Jesus wept. Uh, it took me only a couple of hours to memorize that. I'm just a little slow. But uh, there's something amazing about that passage. It's incredible, really. Uh, Listen to what it says, and I'm going to just start. You know what's going on here is Lazarus had died. Martha and Mary, the sisters. Um, Mary is finally making her way out to uh, the tomb where he is, and she comes upon the Lord. And verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Those are maybe two of the most powerful words in Scripture. Jesus wept. When I think about Jesus standing there and looking at that tomb and looking at the crowds, I think it was a culmination of things that were going on in his heart and in his mind. I think it was a, a culmination of the caring heart of Christ is what, how I would put it. I think as he looked, he saw the power of evil. And I think that, that pained him. It pained him and made him indignant. Understand that he's God and man when he's standing there. And he's looking at this scene, this scenario of the people that he loves. And he's certainly got grief for that family that are 
bereaving the one that they've lost. He's pained by that. He cares so deeply, the Lord does. And beyond that, he sees the crowd, and he knows that in that crowd there's so many that don't even believe and will go to their grave not believing in the Lord. And that pains the Lord. He cares for us so much. It's powerful how the Lord cares for us. And then I think he just sees the power of sin. And I think if he looks beyond that being God and man, he knows that he's going to go to the cross. I think he's seeing and feeling all of these things in that picture. That he'll be separated from the Father. That he'll carry our sin. He'll be made sin for us. So that we can know his righteousness. I think all of those things are in play. But that shows how much the Lord cares for us. That he would go to the cross for us. What a heart of care. And you know, here's what I'm saying to us as a church. If we want to be a disciple-making church, we need to care for one another the same way. We're not God, so we can't see the future. But we need to care the way that Jesus cared for one another. I so often think about the church, and if I was on the outside of it and not a member of the church, would I want to be a member of the church if I knew sometimes how people don't like one another or don't like this congregation or they're fighting over this and that? Jesus prayed his high priestly prayer that we would love one another, that we would care for one another. And that's what a disciple-making church does. That will draw people to the Lord. They love one another. So the question this morning is for us, you know, is do we really, as a church, do we love one another? Do we really care for the souls of others? I have to ask myself that question all the time. Do I really care about that neighbor that drives me crazy? Do I really care for his soul? You know, I say, God, break our hearts to to care for one another. Then we will passionately love Christ and others. I'll take a minute to do this. I didn't know if I was going to do this. I'm not going to sing a song. Don't get nervous. There's a song, and it's an old, old, old song. But it's meaningful to me. It's called, Does Jesus Care? Does anybody remember that song in this? A few of you do. Does Jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth and song? As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long? Does Jesus care when my way is dark with nameless dread and fear? As the daylight fades into deep night shades, does he care enough to be near? Does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long, 
Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? And my sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Does that mean anything to him? Does he see? Oh, yes, he cares. And that's the chorus repeated four times. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary, the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. He does. He cares for us. And we want to be that kind of a disciple-making church. Second point, and I'm moving along here. In order to fulfill this vision of developing disciples, Jesus, God did something else. God gave disciple-makers. Hear what I'm saying. God gave disciple-makers, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers and developers to the church to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That comes from Ephesians 4. I threw in the word developers. That's my own word. But God gave disciple makers to the church. Now understand, every person who names Christ as Savior is called to be a disciple and part of a disciple-making community, the church. There are those who have a calling on their life to primarily make disciples. I want you to understand that. I'm not making a distinction between laity and clergy or anything like that, but there are people that have a primary call on their life to make disciples, and God gave them to the church. They're not any higher, they're not any holier, or better, in fact, they are to be servants. So, first bullet point. The disciple-makers, they, those disciple-makers, are to be totally committed people. So, So think of Jesus again. You have to think of Jesus when we think about making disciples. And Jesus said in John 6, I think 38, I'm not sure, He said, I have come to do the will of my Father. So when Jesus was on the earth, he was doing a number of things. He was making disciples, he was preaching and teaching and doing miracles, but he had a big picture vision the whole time. And his big picture vision was, I am obeying my Father and I am glorifying my Father. That was the big picture for Jesus. So disciple-makers need to have this same kind of a vision. If we're totally committed to making disciples, we need to have our big picture framed. So (laughs) churches are famous for wanting to say, yeah, we've got 900 people in our service, and... uh, and, uh, you know, we're having to move to three services now, and, uh, and you know, pastors get together and they talk that way. And, and, and yet, I think the Lord rewards faithfulness. I think that's what he tells people. He says, well done, thou good and faithful servant. He doesn't say, well done, thou big church, you know. So uh, what I'm pointing at here is that commitment 
to the Lord means understanding the big picture of faithfulness, obedience, and glorifying God. And if you're doing those things as a disciple maker, if I'm doing those things, if we do those things, that's being totally committed and, and understanding the big picture. Another idea of being a totally committed disciple maker, Jesus faced all the things that we face. And when we, 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 I read that song about caring, he faced all the trials that we faced. But there's three words in the book of Hebrews that are so important. He faced them yet without sin. So I love the picture of our Lord. <laughs> he, he was totally committed. He walked through this life facing everything yet without sin. So another idea of being totally committed to the Lord is to be holy. One of the verses that changed my life as a Christian, I was already, already a Christian where I read one morning after some issues in my life where God said, be ye holy as I am holy, and it changed my whole life. And so part of being a committed disciple maker is holiness, purity. Now, we're never going to be totally holy and totally pure, but that's what disciple makers do. They strive to be holy and follow the Lord. And being a totally committed disciple maker means teaching God's word with authority. Jesus taught with authority, didn't he? And people were astounded by his teaching because of his authority. So what was it that made Jesus so authoritative? Think about it. His holiness, he walked the walk in front of everybody when he taught. So people were looking at Jesus, and as he taught these principles, they had to believe him. He taught with authority because he lived what he taught, and people were astounded by that. But not only that, he was humble. Do you know that the Lord Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit in his life? If you look at him in the New Testament and read about him, he was teaching us to rely on the Holy Spirit. So disciple makers who are leaders are to be holy, pure people, and when they're not, we're disappointed and they need to be humble as well. And humble means reliance upon the Holy Spirit. There's a picture of humbleness in the scriptures, and I don't have time to develop it, but the picture is in John 13, where Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. That is the type of committed disciple maker that Jesus is talking about. Someone that would get on their knees with a towel and a cloth, and wash the feet of a, a brother or sister in Christ. Holiness, humility, that's part of being totally co to committed to the Lord. A, a pure walk before God and men. And, and that people recognized his authority because of that, and they listened to him because of that. So being totally committed meant that Jesus, uh, another thing was that he kept giving himself over and over and over. You remember in the scriptures where it talks about Jesus got away from the crowd <laughs> and then the crowd got to Jesus and then he welcomed them and with his disciples, can you imagine how many questions they had for him every day? And the Lord kept giving himself over. He was a disciple maker. And so he gave himself to those that wanted to follow him. And that's what we're to do is to give ourselves to those that would follow the Lord and perhaps 
follow us as we follow the Lord. And being totally committed was ultimately the Lord Jesus going to the cross for us. That's total commitment. So those with the call of disciple-making are to be totally committed. And not only that, they're to be, disciple-makers are to be creative teachers. So Jesus was a master teacher, was he not? Yeah, he was. And and, uh, he would take any experience and turn it into a lesson. And there's so many illustrations, but just a really short one in the Gospel of John, if you're You might still be there. John chapter 9, the first three verses. Here's Jesus. He's walking along with his disciples. He's a disciple maker. He's a creative teacher. And in in chapter 9, just the first three verses, and as he passed by, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? this man or his parents, that he was born blind. There was a prevalent thought in the time of the Lord Jesus that a person with a disability or uh, some kind of uh, debilitation, they had probably sinned or somebody in their family had probably sinned and it was a result. So the disciples, they see the blind man the same way Jesus sees him and they say, hey, who sinned? Did the man sin or did his parents sin? Here's what Jesus said. Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned. He says, you don't get it. Yeah, he sinned, but that's not the issue here. Or his parents, it wasn't that they sinned. That's not the issue. Here's the issue, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So the Lord goes on and he heals and he teaches this fantastic lesson. So... Jesus was a creative teacher, so we need disciple-makers that are creative teachers. <laughs> think of, uh, uh, think of uh, the Great Commission. As you are going, make disciples. So as you're going along, you're teaching these creative things. Think of Deuteronomy 6, which is primarily for parents, but you know what? It's, it's, it's really about uh, uh, teaching. And here's what it says there. It says, uh, the, the words that I command you, these words that I command you, shall be on your heart. Teach them diligently. Talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. So that's meant for parents, you know? We're to be, you know, it's, we can read the scriptures to our kids, but as we're going, As we're actually working together, walking together, talking together, we're to be teaching lessons. That's what creative teachers do. We had a question and answer time with the Chapman family. And I asked the question, you know, how are your family devotions, you know? And, uh, you know, they kind of mumbled around an answer. And then I'll never forget that Allie, Allie really summed it up to me later. And she said, you know, my mom... She says, we'll mess up or do something that we shouldn't have done or there's some kind of an experience that we go through. And she says that my mom will take that experience and show us from the scripture what God expected of us to do. And I thought, wow, that's as you are going, teach the word of God. And that's what Jesus did. He was a creative disciple maker. 
And that's what we need to do as well. Those with the call of disciple-making are to be creative teachers. And the last point is that disciple-makers, they have an inner core. This is kind of what Phil was talking about before he took the children downstairs. You know, in the scriptures it says many people decided to follow Jesus. The crowds thronged after him. But Jesus, on the other hand, he chose an inner core of people. He chose 12 disciples. We, we know them as the 12 apostles. And one of them didn't work out. They chose another one. But often, Jesus went narrower than that. He had an inner core. You remember the names of the inner core? Peter, James, and John. <laughs> when the Lord went on the Mount of Transfiguration, he said, Peter, James, and John, come with me. And he took them on top of the mountain, and he wanted to teach them something different that the rest of the disciples might not see right away because he was recognizing that these would be leaders in the church. And so he took them. And then you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, who did he take to pray with him? You know, he left the, the large group of disciples, and he said to Peter, James, and John, come here and pray with me. They failed at that. They couldn't stay awake. But yet, those were his inner core. So what am I saying by that? What I'm saying by that is that Jesus recognized leaders. He, he recognized those that would become disciple-makers, and he had an eye toward the future. And that's what we're to do as disciple-makers. And that's what Phil was talking about in, in, in teaching our children uh, and, and recognizing the gifts that our children have. When I was a young man, I was really idealistic as a young Christian, and I wanted to be part of a church. One of my dreams was to be part of a church that would look at their own congregation and recognize gifted young men in that church that could be pastors and raise up the pastors from within the, their own body instead of following the business model, which is what most of the churches do. You know what the business model is? Is that, you know, you, you check all the seminaries and find those that have graduated, you know, from a seminary from anywhere in the country, bring them in and interview them and see if they're a good fit for your church. Now, God can use that, and he has used it, so I can't totally criticize that. But I think the better model, I mean, Ephesians 4 says God gave gifted men to the church and women. And so that's what disciple makers do is they look for other people that have gifts. And I look at our, our churches, and I think, well, Tim Badal grew up in the church. I came into the church as a brand-new Christian, and eventually the Lord allowed me to be a pastor here. David Wood grew up in the church. Josue really was a, just a, a, a novice Christian when he came and, and grew up in the church. Uh, uh, Phil has been attending church uh, village for around 10 years. And eventually, we recognize what he has, and God has made him a pastor. And I love that. I love that our church can look within and find men of God to serve and recognize the gifts they have. And I look at our congregation this morning. I look at our young people, Jacob and Maddie and, and Dylan. They're laughing right now, but that's okay. 
Uh, I don't know what they're laughing about. It doesn't really matter. Uh, they'll tell me later. And, and Brandon and, you know, Melody and, and Katie. And, and, I, and I look at these people and I, those that are gone uh, that are serving the Lord already. And I think, wow, God has given us gifted young people in this church to serve him. And that's what disciple makers do is they think about the future and what, what God would do through our young people. Those with the call of disciple-making are to be duplicating themselves by preparing younger disciples for the ministry. Sum it up. If Indian Creek, our campus, if we're to develop disciples, we must count the cost. What does that mean for us as a church? We must be part of a community effort. We do this together. We make disciples together. We must care for one another the same way that Jesus cared for us. And we've got to have committed disciple makers to lead us. We've got to have good creative teachers that make disciples. And we've got to prepare an inner core for the future. Let's pray, shall we? Father, I I thank you that you care for us so deeply that you sent Jesus to not just make disciples, Lord, but to die for us because of your great love for us, Father. Help us to love one another that way, to love our neighbors. Father, we want to be a disciple-making church, and I ask that you would teach us what it means to develop disciples and how to do that. And I thank you for your word and all the, the pictures that you give us, Lord. Uh, and I thank you that every part of your word points to the Lord Jesus Christ, and we give him glory and praise and honor. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.